0: You're, while you're getting uh, kind of situated, uh, I just want to give a quick plug for uh, that Secret Church event on April 21st. We strive as a staff to not over things here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. We know that uh, your time is both limited and valuable, and that really the last thing anyone needs is more stuff to do. And so we try to be aware of that and cognizant of that. And so when we do decide we're going to uh, do something kind of outside of our normal operating calendar, uh, we're very intentional about that. And so this year, as we're walking through uh, the large narrative story of the Bible, Genesis uh, through Revelation, uh, and we saw this opportunity come up, uh, it's something that we wanted to latch on to. And that's because. A question that gets asked frequently about the Bible, and it's a good question, is how can I trust that this isn't just a conglomeration of some stories that were just randomly put together? How do we know it's authoritative? How can I trust that it's the word of God? How do I communicate that to somebody else? Uh, And so David Platt is going to walk through those types of questions. We thought it fit really well with this Bible initiative that we're doing this year. And so it is a large chunk of time, six hours on Friday night. Um, But we encourage you to take part in it. We think it's going to be super beneficial, uh, helpful for us as a congregation. And so encourage you to either find out more about it. You can can Google Secret Church and pull up their website and learn all about what Secret Church is and how it functions and why they do it. And uh, you can learn more about this particular uh, version of Secret Church, if you will, there on that website. We also encourage you to sign up. Uh, We think that's going to be a great night. This morning, we're flipping into the book of Joshua. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to there, Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Uh, as we've been walking through Scripture up to this point, one of the things that we've tried to do is not just uh, open the Word of God, allow it to speak, to unfold the truth that's there, but also to try to give some practical kind of tips as you Uh, Maybe you're engaging with Scripture for the first time over the course of this year, and we want to help you uh, to feel confident and competent in doing that. Uh, So we've been offering some tips along the way, and so here's one this morning. Don't ever be ashamed to use your table of contents. Uh, When I first became a believer, having not grown up in church, never having gone to Sunday school or anything like that, I can remember being uh, a freshman in college and I was uh, attending church there in Columbia, Missouri, and the, the pastor would get up there and he would say, today we're going to be looking at fill in the blank. And I would just kind of patiently wait for all the people around me to make it to that passage of scripture. And then I would peek over, and even though they had a different Bible, see what page number they were on and figure, mine's got to be close to that. And then I would go to the same page number and work both sides until I found where I was supposed to be. Uh, No one's born just knowing the order of the books of the Bible. And so if you're new to Scripture, you're interacting with the Word of God, maybe for the first time or in a more intentional way than you ever have before, don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. Wealth of knowledge there, most specifically what page things are on. And so as we continue to work forward, uh, we're going to start to move through some books of the Bible a little bit quicker than we have been up to this point, which means on Sunday mornings we'll be jumping positions there in the Bible a little bit more, don't ever be ashamed to go table of contents and then to where you're supposed to be. Uh, There's no shame in that at all. In fact, if you were to go and look at your table of contents, uh, unlike a normal book, most books that we interact with, where it moves page one to the end, the Bible, the story of the Bible functions a little bit differently. Your table of contents in the Old Testament is not earliest thing to latest thing and then flips into the new testament what or how the bible is laid out the old testament in particular is that the first 5 books where we've just finished are called the pentateuch it literally means five scrolls pentateuch and those 5 books the authorship is attributed to Moses they're typically referred to as the law or the torah Uh, As you read through the rest of the Old Testament and something refers to the law, usually they're referring to those first five books of the Bible. Uh, Then the next chunk of Scripture begins with Joshua. And it goes all the way to the book of Esther. There's about a thousand years worth of history there. And those books are what are referred to as the history. So there's the Pentateuch, and then there's the history. Then the next chunk of books in your table of contents are the wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs... Uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those are wisdom literature. They don't just start after Esther ended. In fact, most of those, a large portion of those, were written by David or Solomon. They fit into uh, those history books. And then the last chunk of the Old Testament are prophets. They're books that start with a person's name, Uh, Why am I not thinking of any? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, (laughs) Isaiah. You get in front of people and things get weird. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel. Those books, those prophets also fit inside the history. So Genesis to Esther is the narrative of the Old Testament. Everything that comes after that slots inside it somewhere. Table of contents, a wonderful thing. Don't be ashamed to use it. Moving on. Um, Where we are this morning is that we're going to flip into the history of the history books there in the Old Testament. And it begins with the book, Joshua, with an individual named Joshua. And so at this point, it's helpful for us to just recap everything we've seen thus far. I said uh, a couple of months ago that we would do this every once in a while. It's helpful to know as we shift into a new section of the Old Testament exactly where we've come from. And so, if you've got one of your little red books, one of your little Bible initiative books, you'll notice that on the page for every week, there's the context of what you're reading that week, and then there's this graphic that Corey Thomason has put together for us. And at the bottom of that page, there are always four words. Those four words are helping orient where you are in the story of Scripture. Nine eras in the Old Testament. We've worked through a few of those already, and so... If you were to just track the story of the Old Testament up to this point, you could do so easily with 12 words. The first word is creation, that God created everything. His character is on display there. The pinnacle of that creation is humanity. The second word is fall, that sin enters the world. Adam and Eve, sin in the garden. And from that point forward, all of humanity is marked with a nature that is bent toward disobeying the word of the Lord. It's sinful nature creation fall the next thing is flood noah is the primary uh human actor in that story and god brings just judgment on the world for its sin and then from there is the tower of babel where humanity is scattered all over the face of the earth creation fall flood tower the next era are the patriarchs and that begins with abraham Abraham receives a promise from the Lord that God is going to use Abraham's family line to bless all the nations of the earth. And that is the beginning of God's very expressed, explicit plan to redeem all of humanity the world over from sin. And he's going to do so, he's going to begin that through the family line of a man named Abraham. And Abraham's first son is Isaac. Abraham, Isaac. Isaac's son is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The second youngest of those is Joseph. And Joseph is the means by which the story moves itself to Egypt. He's sold into slavery. He rises to prominence there. And then we flip and we get into the book of Exodus. And so that's the third, testament, or the third era of the Old Testament history, the Exodus. During the Exodus, we see God deliver his people from slavery. He uses these powerful plagues. He displays his power, not just to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians and to the entire world. And he delivers the Israelites from slavery. From there, they go out into the wilderness. They cross the Red Sea, and they're given the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, but also a lot more than just the Ten Commandments. They arrive at a place called Kadesh Barnea. That would be the 11th word, Kadesh And from there, they send 12 spies into their promised land to check it out. Is it everything that God said it was going to be? And they go into the promised land. And what they discover is that it is amazing, but it's inhabited by some imposing, intimidating people. And so the 12 spies come out of the promised land, and they deliver this bad report. And 10 of them say, we cannot overtake the people that live in the land. We shouldn't even attempt it. Two individuals feel differently. God's promised that He's going to give us that land, and we can trust that promise. Those two individuals are Joshua and Caleb. And so because of this bad report and the Israelites' unfaithfulness, the twelfth word that you could use to track the story thus far is wandering. That's what Kurt taught about last week, and that's where our reading was last week. The Israelite people for 40 years just wander in the desert, and what we're told is that everyone 20 years old and up was going to pass away. So an entire generation dies out in the wilderness while the Israelites wander, except for two individuals, Joshua and Caleb. And they, the Israelites arrive at Mount Nebo. They're looking across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Moses goes up onto the mountain. He dies there, and leadership is transferred to Joshua. And he's going to be the one that God uses to lead the Israelite people into the Promised Land. And so that's how we arrive at the book of Joshua this morning. And it provides for us an opportunity There are times in life for all of us where it seems as though uh, the season or the time is tailor-made for both reflecting backward on something, but also looking forward. We get that at birthdays, New Year's, maybe an anniversary you recently had. If you've got uh, children, when they go to school for the first time, or when they graduate, or when they get their license, or when they get married, it provides parents this opportunity to reflect backward, but also to look forward. Maybe you're starting a new job, and that provides... The same type of opportunity. Joshua gives us that chance. In fact, the Lord encourages it as he speaks to Joshua. And so we're going to read a significant passage here in Joshua chapter 1 and then a significant chunk in Joshua chapter 3. Because the encouragement that God gives to Joshua and then that Joshua passes on to the Israelites is something that we should cling to as well. And so if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read Joshua chapter 1 verses 1 to 9. It says this After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the, uh, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land, Of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Wherever you go, three times in a six or in a three verse section of this passage, the Lord gives Joshua the same encouragement. He says, be strong and courageous. One time he says, be strong and very courageous. Where does that courage come from? Where can that strength come from? It's certainly not because Joshua is so competent. It's certainly not because he's just supposed to muster up some sense of bravery and charge headlong with his people into the promised land and just wipe out everybody that's there. No, his courage is supposed to come from the fact that the Lord is with him wherever he goes. And we've seen this throughout Scripture up to this point, that the Lord is present. He's present with humanity. He was there at creation, seeing to the intentional creation of everything that's here within the world and the universe. He was there with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then even after they sinned, his presence did not leave humanity. He was with Noah in the midst of the flood and with Abraham at the giving of the covenant. He was with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And he was with Moses in Egypt. And he tells Joshua, I'm going to be with you now as you go into the promised land. Joshua is able to be courageous because the Lord's presence is constant. Joshua is able to be courageous because the Lord's presence is constant. I want to offer you the same encouragement this morning. One of the things that our staff has the opportunity to do is to hear about the challenges and struggles or excitements and joys that are happening in the lives of the people in this congregation. And oftentimes that looks like an unexpected illness. A trip to the hospital that no one foresaw. Sometimes it's an unexpected death within a family or the excitement of a marriage. At times it's relational struggles within a family or whatever the case might be. And the primary thing that we have to offer is not some sort of magic word that's going to fix everything within that situation. There's wisdom. Kurt and TA and Libby and Catherine and Jim all have incredible wisdom to offer people here. But at the same time, the greatest thing we have to hold out is the fact that the Lord's presence is constant and that His faithfulness is unchanging. The Lord offers that same thing to Joshua. And He even tells him where to turn to be reminded of it. He says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to it from the right or to the left, that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night. Whenever we're standing and looking forward at the prospect of a challenge that looms large and seems difficult or nerve-wracking or foreboding, we should turn our attention to Scripture to be reminded of the faithfulness of the Lord. If we want courage going forward, we have to have the presence of mind to think backward. If we want the courage to walk faithfully through the relational challenges we may experience in our family or through the health problems that may arise for us, through the career twists and turns, the financial burdens that may pop up in life, we have to have the presence of mind to look backward to go to Scripture and see the faithfulness of the Lord to humanity throughout all of time, but also to think backward in our own life about the Lord's presence and His faithfulness in the midst of circumstances we've already come through. Courage, bravery, and strength doesn't come from mustering up some sort of internal willpower to just overcome whatever nervous situation lies in front of us. It comes from standing firmly, on the faithfulness of the Lord in the past. And so it's after this little pump-up speech, if you will, in Joshua 1, that Joshua goes to the commanders of his military, in verse 11, and he says, "'Pass throughout the midst of camp and command the people, "'Prepare your provisions, for in three days "'you are to pass over this Jordan "'to go and take possession of the land of the Lord your God is giving you to possess.'" Joshua says, we can go do this. I thought we could do it 40 years ago before we wandered in the desert. Now here we are, and we can go into that land. And so commanders, go through the camp and tell everybody, in three days, we're crossing that river. And then this account in Joshua turns to the Israelite people. So that's where I want to direct our attention to as well. You see, the Israelite people at this point probably remember quite fondly why it is they wandered for 40 years in the desert. They understand that their parents, their grandparents, were unfaithful in trusting the Lord to deliver the promised land to them, and that because of that, they wandered for 40 years. And what you're going to read about in the book of Joshua is what is arguably the Israelite people's most faithful period of time. They do a remarkable job of both trusting the Lord and doing what He tells them. They're not perfect. They have some slip-ups. But compared to what just happened before them and what's about to happen in the book of Judges, in the book of Joshua, we read about a remarkably faithful generation of Israelites. And I think it has a lot to do about the warning that came before them. We have a relatively young congregation here, a lot of young families with children who are in elementary school or middle school, high school, young married couples who don't have children yet. But we also have some more seasoned individuals in our congregation, (laughs) some more experienced people. And I want to offer a, a challenge to that group. You have the opportunity to provide an example For the Israelite people, this generation that came before them served as a warning. It provided an example, but a negative one. Don't do this thing. What Scripture talks about is that parents, older generations, should provide a positive example of what it looks like to faithfully follow the Lord for their children, and for those who come after them. If you're someone in our congregation who would put themselves in the seasoned category, I want to encourage you that there are a lot of people here who would love nothing more than to spend some time with you getting a first-hand look at what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus over the course of a lifetime. I say that from experience. There are some individuals in my life who have been very gracious and generous with their time, who've walked way ahead of me in life and have done so faithfully before the Lord. And it is a humbling privilege for me that they would spend time with me helping me understand what that looks like, what that means. That there's someone that I can turn to when I come to a crossroad in life and I can say, you've probably been here. What does it look like to follow the Lord faithfully in this season right now since you've already gone through it? There's an opportunity to provide positive example. If you're a parent, you've got that opportunity with your children. If you're someone in this congregation who's been through a lot of life, who has a lot of experience, you have the opportunity to offer that not only to your own families, but also to others in this congregation who could use a mentor or some discipleship. In fact, research says that one thing that millennial generations want more than anything else is a mentor, but they're afraid to ask for it. And so I want to turn that now to the younger people in this congregation. Don't buy into the lie of your own self sufficiency and arrogance, ask someone. Ask someone who's a little further ahead of you in life if they would be willing to come alongside you and provide an example of what it looks like, not perfectly, but faithfully, to follow Jesus. I think that picture of discipleship and mentoring is one of the most beautiful and biblical things that the church has to offer within itself. And you have that. You can give that away. Or if you're someone who's younger in this congregation, it would benefit you to seek it and to find that. And so this group of Israelite people, with that running background of an older generation that's entirely passed away and their unfaithfulness, running in their heads, they receive the following words. This is, Joshua chapter 3. We're going to read a pretty long chunk here. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall, enter, or you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark and went before the people. These priests are supposed to carry this... Ark, a golden box that contains the presence of the Lord. 2,000 cubits in front of the rest of the Israelites. That's about 3,000 feet out in front of them. Why? Well, So that the Israelite people can see the Lord go before them. And then it goes on. And the Lord said to Joshua, "'Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, "'that they may know that as I was with Moses, "'so I will be with you. "'And as for you, command the priests "'who bear the Ark of the Covenant, "'when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan,' You shall stand still in the water. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore... Take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in a heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before them, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, And there's a little parenthetical statement. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. Don't lose sight of this moment. The Jordan is a flooded river at the time. And these priests take the Ark of the Covenant, which would have been heavy and kind of challenging to walk with. And they're supposed to just walk out into the water with the understanding that God said when our feet touch the water, the water will stop flowing. And so they take the box, they're 3,000 feet out in front of their rest of their people and they step into the water and then it says that it piled up in a heap very far away. Just like God said it would. And Joshua remembering the faithfulness of the Lord to Moses before him and to everyone before that, probably thought to himself, just like I thought it would. God said that would happen, and it did. And then the Israelite people are given two commands, one from the Lord and one from Joshua. The one from the Lord is to take those 12 men, one from each tribe, and have them get a stone out of the riverbed. And take that stone over to a town called Gilgal and set up a little altar, memorial there, to the Lord's faithfulness. And then Joshua takes that one step further and he says, not only are we going to put one in the town, but grab 12 more rocks and make a stack in the middle of the river. And then after all the Israelites walk across and the ark is brought up out of it, the water starts to flow again and now there are two piles of rocks. One in the town where they camp for the first night and one that sticks up out of the middle of the river. Why? Because the Israelites are about to go into battle with a lot of people. It's not going to be easy. And they're going to lose some men in the midst of those battles. But they're going to be able to look over their shoulder at a pile of rocks at Gilgal or a pile of rocks standing out in the middle of the river and say to themselves, Just as the Lord was constant back then, He will be constant going forward. And we can be courageous, not because our fighting force is so great, but because the Lord who fights for us is so great. He brought us through that river. He will take us through this promised land. And that pile of rocks in both places exists for generations to come so that Israelite people, when a child asks about it, can tell the story of the Lord's faithfulness. When you read through the book of Joshua, they make a lot of piles of rocks, not just these two. They make a bunch of other ones. Why? So that they can draw courage from the constant presence of the Lord. We need reminders Of that. And so I want to ask you today: do you set up for yourself reminders of what the Lord has done in the past? There's a man who used to be the youth pastor here. In fact, he was a youth pastor when I was a high school student when I came to faith. He runs a ministry out of Memphis, Tennessee now. And In part of that ministry, he talks a lot about what it looks like to disciple your family well. And he talks about something they do within their family, which is that they've got a chest. And inside that chest, they either went to a creek or they went to Hobby Lobby and bought some stones. And they put these stones inside this chest. And whenever something happens that's kind of significant in their lives, they take out one of those rocks and they write a single word on it in Sharpie. So if someone were to defeat cancer... They would write, cancer, on the rock. And a few times a year, they sit down with their children, and they let their kids reach in and pull out a rock. And whatever that word says on that rock, they recount the story as a family. And they remember the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of it. That's what these piles of stones are for in the book of Joshua that the people could always remember the Lord's faithfulness in the past and draw courage from that going forward. That's my encouragement for us. That we would always be able to draw courage going forward because of the Lord's faithfulness in the past. One place we see that is by going to Scripture and reading of His faithfulness in the past. Another way that we do it is by remembering the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of our own experience. But that takes intentionality. It might be a journal. It could be you know, some sort of setup like Kenan uses with his family, or you could come up with your own way that for yourself, and for your family, you're able to remember the Lord's faithfulness in the past. Our courage going forward comes from the Lord's constant presence in the past. I don't know what people in our congregation are on the brink of right now. I also don't know what will come in the distant future for you and your family. But I can offer you a concrete truth, regardless of when those things come or regardless what you're facing now. And that's that you can draw courage to face that thing because the Lord has been constant with you up to this point. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. There's one other thing that I think is important to acknowledge. And that's that as you read the book of Joshua, what you're going to see is that the Lord commands his people to do a lot of killing. And that logically raises the question, how could he do that? Joshua 6.21 says this, Then they, the Israelites, devoted all in Jericho to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, to destruction with the edge of the sword. That sort of refrain happens a lot throughout the book of Joshua, and it's hard to reckon with, and uh, I would be failing you as your pastor if I just dodged it. It raises the question, why in the world would the Lord want His people to do this? It's because the Lord is bringing judgment on the sin of the people that don't know Him. We saw this at the flood. We saw it at the plague of the firstborns in Egypt. We see it again here. The Lord is incredibly patient with humanity in the midst of our sin, but His patience is not eternal. There's an expiration date to his mercy. For years, God had chosen to be patient and gracious in the midst of the sin of the people that lived in the land of Canaan. They worshipped false gods like Baal and Molech that often involved cult prostitution or the sacrificing of their own children. Even outside of that, they were just sinful, broken human beings who hated one another or spoke falsely or coveted each other's stuff. And so at this moment... He chooses to use the Israelite people as the means by which he exercises his just judgment on their sin. And though it is difficult to read, and it should be, the statement we should ask, or the question we should ask is, why would God do this? Instead, the question is, I can't believe God would be so patient. Why would he be so patient? Joshua leads the Israelites into the inheritance that God had promised them while simultaneously bringing judgment upon those who have no regard for the Lord. And as we read about this, it shadows a greater judgment that's coming in the future. There will come a day when Jesus returns, the Son, in all of His glory and in all of His splendor, And he will lead his people, those who have placed their faith in him, into a promised inheritance of eternity with the Lord. But he will simultaneously bring judgment upon all those who have not placed their faith in him. And in that moment, the question globally, worldwide, for all people, is not going to be, how could God send people to hell? It's going to be, why in the world would he save any of us? It's a gracious and a merciful act on his part to do so. One final little tidbit is Numbers 13.16 records Moses changing Joshua's name from Hosea to Joshua. Joshua means salvation. The New Testament translation of Joshua is Jesus. Just as Joshua brings Israel into their promised inheritance, so too Jesus will lead His people into a promised eternal inheritance when He Returns At the same time, Joshua was used by the Lord to bring judgment upon those who did not know God. And when Jesus returns, he will do the same. He will lead his people into an eternal inheritance, but he will also bring an eternal judgment on those that don't know him. Joshua can be a little hard to read because of the reality of that judgment that plays out in front of us. But it ought to point our attention to the fact that God will bring a similar judgment someday in the future. And it should motivate us to share the message of the gospel as far and as widely as possible. We're going to sing. Uh, You can stand up. Brian will close us down when we're done. Uh, Have a great week. Let's worship together before we close.